our podcast. One. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Life Fantastic, the podcast where people with disabilities talk about all things disability here on Straight Independent Radio. Check out the new website, straight, with an A, indieradio.us, for all sorts of new features and, and exclusives for our members. Life Fantastic Podcast is sponsored by neurodiversityconsulting.org and saintchia.org. Check us out on the web to find out about all the great things we do with people with disabilities. Keep an eye out for the Creativity Expo that is coming this July, 2021, as more and more people are vaccinated and we're more and more able to actually go outside and be with people. We're going to be creating opportunities for folks with disabilities and their families to explore the creative arts. So keep checking online for when the news about that comes up. It's coming soon. I'm your host, the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce, and I am joined by my colleagues, Liza Citron, who's actually here next to me today, <laughs> autistic disabled advocate and future special education teacher, Scott Davis, disabled advocate, speaker, writer, and entrepreneur, and Dr. Jeremy Pierce, my husband and my partner in all of these parenting shenanigans that we get up to. <laughs> We're, we're diving back into the topic of mental health because it's a big deal. We all have big emotions and we all are able to deal with them to varying degrees. And especially now with all the turmoil that we've experienced over the, it's been over a year now. It's real, we, we see how important it is to focus on mental health and care about mental health. Today we are talking about resilience. And we've talked about resilience before, but we wanna unpack it some more. And we're talking about how to foster resilience in yourself and people around you. So my first question is, what comes to mind when you hear the term resilience? How do you define resilience? Liza, I'll start with you. <laughs> because I'm in the room with you? Yeah, basically. But, <laughs> yes. Uh, for me, one of the big things that comes to, comes to mind is flexibility. Hmm. Being able to bounce back. A rubber band is, is resilient. Scratchy things are resilient. They, they bounce back to what they were originally. And while we may not be able to return to what we were originally, there are still things that we can do to maintain that, as I'm sure we'll talk about later. One of the big things that comes to mind also, resiliency is the ability to bounce back specifically most of the time from traumatic events. Whether that's a death in the family, as we've unfortunately had all too many over the past over a year, or something in the community, a community event. I'm not going to bring up anything specific because political, but there are plenty of events out there that could be considered traumas that are going on right now as a community, or even a lot of things that people just wouldn't think of as traumas. 
seeing something that is commonplace, mm. but that incredibly upset and traumatized you. One person's normal is another person's trauma. And we have to keep that in mind yes. when we are discussing resilience. What would not matter to me could really traumatize you and affect you and make you need mental health care, which unfortunately isn't as available, that is trauma-informed. And mm -hmm. I'm sure that's something that we are going to talk about later on within the end. And you you mentioned something that I real that I really like that's important for us to pull out is that as we bounce back from the trauma, we don't always go back to the starting point. And a, a big part of resilience is is taking that taking that traumatic experience experience and learning from it and growing from it and being a different you're a different person one way or the other, yeah. but being a, a more complex, more fully formed, well thought out version of yourself afterwards than you were before. It's, a, take, it's a growth opportunity. To take the rubber band example, there's only so many times you can stretch out a rubber band. Eventually it does not snap back to what it originally was. It, it'll still work as a rubber band for keeping a different size bag closed, it will still work as a rubber band for doing things, but it will not be the same yeah. as it used to. It'll still snap back, but it won't be the exact same as it used to, but it's still usable. All right, thank you. Um, Scott, Jeremy, how yeah. about you? When you hear yeah. resilience, what are you thinking? Yeah. There was a good quote in one of the uh, articles on, in, in, on science teaching. It said that we must also celebrate the power of resilience and that many of us have found a way to survive the not okay. But when you're thinking of resilience, it, it has a lot of different components. There's the idea of the ruler component of recognizing the emotions, understanding the cause of them, labeling them, then expressing them within the norms and regulating. It's all this, it comes down to that we talked about in the past of social emotional learning. And it's really about regulating, and I, and I heard it, I've read an interesting thing where it's how do we control our, our minds because we can have a good response in the, a lot of times there's fight, flight, and, and fight, flight, and fright. That's like on the downstairs part of the brain. And then the upstairs is how you manage things with resilient attitude. And I agree with uh, Eliza about bouncing back. There are so many different ways to uh, look at this resilience puzzle, but it's the idea of coping. And we know that for autistic individuals, Scott, you were talking about fight, flight, and fright. For autistic, individual, for autistic individuals, fight or flight is constant. The part of our brain that controls that is overactive. So that really plays into resilience and trauma because if we're already in that fight or flight state, that affects how our trauma is going to affect us and take root and encode itself in the brain. Yeah. State dependent learning. Yep, and I like Scott that you described it as the upstairs part of the brain, thinking about what the downstairs part of the brain is mm -hmm. feeling because that's exactly it. That's how we work on building resilience. But in situations where we're constantly 
inundated with stress and traumatic yeah. events, that conversation between the upstairs brain and the downstairs brain doesn't always work the way it should. Right. And the downstairs brain, the feeling part, tends to take over and run the show and things start to get really sketchy. Jeremy, do you wanna you wanna chime in on resilience and, and what you see as resilience? What do you what do you think of when you hear the term resilience and fostering resilience? Yeah, well the whole bouncing back thing is actually the literal origins of the word. It comes from a Latin word that meant that literally meant jumping back <laughs> to, to your starting point. And and uh, so obviously the, the the history of the word is from using that as a metaphor for the ability to uh, to continue forward after something has set you back in some way, or something has distracted you in some way, or diverted your your attention or your direction. So I the way the word is used in English now, I I tend to see it as kind of synonymous with endurance and patience and. Uh, other kinds of character traits that have to do with or support your ability to continue to move forward or move in, in the direction you were going. Obviously there are times when we should change direction. We're not always starting off in the right direction or a good direction for us. But um, when something sidetracks us from where, what would be a healthy path, the ability to move back to that healthy path I think is is rightly called resilience. I think that's uh, that's the kind of thing that that we're talking about here. There's a um, there's a lot of discussion in the history of philosophy about ways that we can do that. Ways that internally ordering ourselves can provide a basis for moving into dealing with the things that life throws at us, I guess. And um, I mean, just, I think of Plato's account of three parts of the soul, which in some ways is a precursor of Freud's three parts, but uh, they don't exactly line up with Freud. I think Plato's version makes more sense than Freud's actually, but, but the, the uh, Plato doesn't have an upstairs and a downstairs part. He's got three. He's got reason, which is your ability to see what's good and call it good and recognize it as good and, and see what's true and call it true and don't recognize it as true. Then there's the emotional stuff, which is what you were calling downstairs stuff, your, your passions, what you get excited about, what you get upset about, what you get fearful of and so on. And then he just had plain physical desire, just the things that you're, that are not, that you're not under, under control of. There are things that you want and you just want them, but there are also the emotional stuff that you can long-term kind of control by changing what you value, changing what you see as good. And his proposed model was your reasoning ability can help you long-term, again, not very quickly, but long-term to love what is good, to hate what is bad or fear what is bad or whatever emotion would be appropriate for that. But it's not a quick process in his view. And I think many of the ancient philosophers were influenced by that in ancient Greece and, and in the West, history of Western thought since then. 
they don't all agree with precisely how he does it, but that's that's a large strain in the history of, of thought. So I want to focus I want to focus on the point you made about this being long-term change. And you know, we live in a society that, that likes quick fixes, likes things to happen now, now, now. You know, if if your phone takes too long to open an app, it's like, oh my gosh, this app, I need to restart the phone. I need to do something to make it faster. Building our resilience and building our emotional robustness is a long-term process. It's something we do throughout our lives. That's gonna be hard for some people to, to, to sit with, but that's how, that's how that works. We are constantly growing. We're constantly learning. And another thing that you mentioned that, you know, from the philosophical uh, viewpoint is the changing of what you value. And that is really how resilience works. You take a look at the things that you're experiencing and you take a look at the emotions that you're having and then you think differently about those. You, you, change, your, you change your thoughts until your emotions follow with what you value. So thank you for that insight, Jeremy. My next question is, what, why is resilience important? Why is it important, especially when we're thinking of people with disabilities, uh, people with developmental disabilities, intellectual disabilities, uh, physical disabilities, whatever kind of disability there is, why is it important for us to be thinking about building resilience, helping these folks yeah. build resilience and thinking about um, what kinds of traumas they may be experiencing and helping them work through that. Scott, you have something? Yeah, one thing, as I was doing a lot of the research, a common question came to my mind. I haven't answered it yet. Maybe we can answer it now. A lot of when we're dealing with I, I like what Jeremy said about how we identify ourselves, but a lot of times autistic individuals or sometimes those that take longer to, to develop, like myself, sometimes it's hard for us sometimes to have an understanding of ourselves. That was when I was younger. Now I have a pretty good understanding of myself. I know where I come from. I understand the struggles I face that I can identify when I look at things, but the whole idea of identity, especially for the disabled, how, how are they or any of us that challenge, whether we get older, how do you fit that all in? But it's important to be patient. And there's uh, several, a doctor, Ginsburg, or I don't know his first name, but he had seven C's about resilience, confidence, connection, character, contribution, coping, control, and competence. And we're, we're, we're touching on all those C's, but I think that just kind of gives a framework of how you can look at resilience. And I like that you touched on this, the, the identity component because what we think about ourselves predicts how, how resilient we are going to be, how, how good we're going to be at, bounce, at bouncing back. So you have a positive self-image 
your 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 ability to bounce back is going to be a little bit stronger than someone who doesn't have a positive self-image for someone who has a negative self-image they're starting kind of lower down on on the ladder when it comes to climbing up to resilience and and bouncing back liza you want to chime in here <laughs> well for one of the things as for why it's important, I mean, you can always trust me to either bring up the obvious or the, the <laughs> I guess, not popular answer. I don't know. But for, for disabled individuals or individuals of any minority identity that, that we're talking about identity, it's important to think about resilience and actually consider how to gain it and how we see ourselves and how that interacts with it. Because honestly, the world doesn't exactly treat us that well and the world is not built for us. It's built for, with other individuals in mind, not us. And that can cause trauma in and of itself. There's a reason that medical trauma among disabled people is so talked about. There's a, by the disabled people themselves. There's a reason that systemic trauma exists because we're living in a world not built for us. So we have to be resilient every single day, considering we have to change up our plans on the fly if something isn't accessible, or we have to do a lot. But having to do it takes a lot out of us. And when those, those things get more severe, they can become traumatic. And like I said, there's community trauma, which is why there's trauma for the disabled community as a whole, medical trauma. There are a whole bunch of other ways in which this world does not work for disabled people. And that can be traumatizing. It's also important, like we said, disabled people are, and that's disabled people, I apologize, autistic people rather, are constantly in a trauma state, constantly in fight or flight. So resilience is important in that matter because how do we cope with, how do we cope with constantly being in that traumatic state? There are physical things that can cause excess cortisol. There are things that adrenaline can cause to the heart. There are other physical things, but even more than that, perhaps there is this mental brain and facts that trying to think about consciously more about where you fit in the world than other people brings you and having to think about how you go about your day in ways that other people can just go and not even have a concern about and being treated as different and other. And in many cases, worse than can bring you, especially when you're in that state all the time. This only adds to it. You bring up a good point about how that, that trauma, that stress that we need resilience to, to get us to, that has a physiological effect. Exactly. 
you, you talked about the adrenaline and the cortisol. Cortisol is that stress hormone that your body cranks out when it's like, oh, I'm going to die. So yep. I need to enter survival mode and crank out all this cortisol. It changes every system in your body. But our bodies aren't meant to be to have cortisol coursing through our bodies all the time. No. So then we become begin to have negative health outcomes. And I feel the need to add, I mentioned state-dependent memory earlier. The fact that when you were in a particular state, whether that state be drunk, whether that state be in a particular place or anything of the sort, you will remember the things that happened in that state. That's why it's important to take tests in the same environment as you studied in or anything like that. But that also means that if we are constantly as autistic individuals in fight or flight mode, in this trauma mode, any trauma that we experience during that is more likely to come up again and again and again when we're in that state, not because we have additional trauma, although that will happen again, we could be re-traumatized, but because we are in the same state and it is what our body does, what our mind does. Those memories tend to get encoded deep, deep, mm -hmm. deep. And it's not just the, the memory of events, it's the memory of the way that you felt. you felt. Yes. And that can put you back to a situation like you were already, you're actually there experiencing the traumatizing events all over again. And you could be just sitting at your desk. I've been, that's happened to me before. Uh, I, interesting. It's on, when I was researching, I was thinking we talked in the past about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and mm -hmm. yeah. there was a, a Dr. Leon uh, Stemmet that in in the 360 degree Nation Biz Catalyst, mm -hmm. it was on a website deciding where it came from. He mentioned about we become resilient once our needs are met, our psychological needs, our belonging, which is our social needs, our self esteem, and our actualization. And I don't yeah. have the whole hierarchy how it might relate to resilience but I think we meant we can mention or, or hit it this way that when our identity is when we, we talked about our identity when we have a good solid identity and that will help make everything as we deal with that social emotional learning in our environments we're going to be able to battle this whole thing of resilience a lot better and Thank you, Scott, because that leads us right into my next series of questions, which is about how do we foster resilience in people, especially mm. people with disabilities who, yes, they experience more events that can be traumatizing to them. So how do we build in to the, the people in our lives with disabilities? How do we build in that, that, those protective factors such that when they experience those events that could be traumatizing, they're able to move through those with strength and confidence and come out the other side a stronger person. And you mentioned, Scott, about building identity. And that's, that is a big deal. 
building identity. Mm -hmm. Because I remember when my kiddos were little, you know, at home, they were being told that your brain is different and that's okay. We just need to learn how, learn how to help you learn how to use your very different brain in a way that works for you. When they were outside of the home, they were getting a different message about disability. And it was a message that they were broken, there was something wrong with them, they needed to be fixed. That is a message that can be very traumatizing, especially for those people who don't, who have a, a, a lower baseline when it comes to being able to bounce back, that they have a, um, their temperament is such that they tend towards negative self-talk. So for, for people with disabilities, it's really important for us to pay attention to the messages that we're sending people about their identities. And Liza, I know you have a lot to say about this. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, well, for me, a lot of it was like Sam said, being told in the world that you couldn't possibly, well, A, you couldn't possibly be autistic because you're a girl. So you can't, it, my experience continually denied. Also told that these autistic traits that you may have, you can't show them. <clears throat> you have to, have to, have to pretend to be neurotypical because that's where you'll get places. And I was told this by extended family members. I was told this by the world. I was told this by my school because I was not getting the accommodations I needed. So I must automatically have been neurotypical. <laughs> That's very much not the case, but the world is such a difficult place for disabled people and I, I have the experience of coming out this, dealing with invisible neurodevelopmental okay. disability and a physical disability that is sometimes visible if I'm using mobility aids, invisible if I'm not. And that really, when you combine those two, we, we've talked about intersectionality before, the experience is combined to form a greater marginalization. But also the things you're told, you're told enough if you're one of these things. But when you're both, people think you can't possibly be both, so you're discredited. And if you, they do believe you, well, you, you, you have all this going on with you. You can't possibly be a good employee. You can't possibly be a good friend. You can't possibly be a good anything. And I'm going to have to bring this up if you, if you're listening and this is an issue for you, if suicide self-harm is a trigger, skip ahead a few minutes. What disabled people are told out in the world, there's a reason that suicide rates are so much higher among disabled people. I cannot remember the exact statistic, but it's over double. I think it's closer to four, four times, but I'm not entirely sure. But they are way higher than what they are for, for able people because of these things that we're told and because our traumas are not cared for or told that we're worth it and we're not 
told how to be resilient because because the system people in the system care but again systemic trauma for me i think one of the big things there is community building figuring out who you are yes building your own identity being able to do this being able to advocate for other artistic people and being part of the artistic community feeling like i'm working with other people who are like me that's helped my identity tenfold and that is one of the ways i was taught to be resilient because these things that i had constantly been told about myself they're not either either not true or they are positive when everyone 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 had been telling me they are negative so the big things for me for building resilience our community, whether that's with people who are like you, people who are different from you, just people. Mm. And, and as hard as that is to do, even at the end of COVID. Yeah. And then really help figuring out yourself, how you fit in with these people and figuring out yourself as you. Yeah. And I have, as disabled people, all of these things that you got told are negative about you. People may see that that way. But uh, they're not. Go ahead, Scott. There's some interesting things. The last time when we were about ready to do our podcast last week, but we had some extra time, I, I, I picked up an article. There were three basic points. It said about being true, like this is how we can educators can foster the resilient learners in classrooms and that's key because mm -hmm. uh, why is this going to be a special ed teacher and uh jeremy is a teacher and even uh sam is a teacher at the home it's the yeah. idea of being true to ourselves it's the idea of uh to have that grace that patience the understanding of the compassion and we have to extend it to ourselves and then yes. that's the idea of getting connected to yourself. We talked about that and being grounded in our identity. We mentioned that and honing in on those innate and inalienable parts of us that can't be taken away and developing a personal mission statement. That's for teachers, but I think it could be for parents. It could be ourselves and you need a self, a safe place. Yeah. And then you also have to know your learners. The safe place is having those fidget toys or those bean bags or whatever or just for me if i'm bored or something i love to listen to music or or look at facebook or do painting or do puzzles things um i gravitate towards and then finally it's basically learning the learners and it's just important because basically this article mentioned that in a trauma sensitive a pedagogy environment in the classroom, you have to plant yeah, seeds. Yeah. You're not going to see that result at that time. Mm -hmm. And that's the source of Sowers and Hall. I don't know the book, but it just mentioned that's where the reference of planting seeds. And finally, it's important to recognize the students as their person first and not to let it define them by it or let their story overshadow who they are. So it's just Basically, it's that identity piece that we talked about early yeah. in the beginning. And that's exactly where I was heading next. And 
uh, thinking about when you, for those of us who have our disability from when we're young, thinking about how do we help shape the identities of these young people in such a way that they have a, a positive self-image and that raises their threshold for their capacity to be able to navigate these traumatic events in their lives and come out the other side still whole and still have, yeah, still having that positive self-image. I, I have to say, this is not something, I didn't really get the hang of this until I was an adult. And I can't <laughs> help but again think of that too. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Judson was a young man in, in our area who he was autistic. He also had mental health um, challenges and in the middle of a mental health crisis, he died at the hands of law enforcement officers who were called to help him. Because he was discharged from the psychiatric emergency department too soon. Yes. And he is someone who, he had that negative self-image and his capacity to, to be resilient was compromised. And it's not clear that there was really anyone building into him mm -hmm. or anyone that he felt safe with that, that he could go to, to be able to, to, to get some help. So again, thinking about the, 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 young, the young people, small children, early elementary, late elementary, middle school, high school, this is the time when your identity is forming. And I love Scott that you 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 brought out um, that educators have such a prominent role to play in helping children form their identities, helping students with disabilities form their identities. I say all the time that teachers can make or break their students' lives. And I don't think teachers really appreciate the power and the influence they have over the lives of the children that come through their doors. Because as you said, Scott, they're planting seeds and those seeds will grow and flower later on in their lives. So for those of you who are educators listening, know that you are planting seeds in the lives of your students. Ask yourself, what kind of seeds are you planting? Are you planting the kinds of seeds that are gonna grow and blossom and help build your students' capacity for resilience? Or are you planting seeds in them that are going to drag them down and suck the life out of them? Ask yourselves these questions, educators, because that is the kind of power and influence you have over the lives of your students. Yes. So what, go ahead, Scott. Even when I, uh, it was especially true when I went, I've mentioned in the podcast before about going from the private uh, disabled environment to the uh, regular uh, mainstreamed environment. And it was a challenge. And obviously the students, uh, especially during junior high, they didn't quite understand me. They thought I was an alien or something. Not really. They never called me an alien, but <laughs> sometimes it's just a funny way to look at it. Uh, and we have uh, background sometimes of uh, Star Wars, uh, Dr. Uh, Jeremy Peterson sometimes, but the, and I was even in the environment temporarily. So it would make sense like a wasteland or you don't really understand how you fit 
into the world. And then when you have teachers like uh, Diane uh, Gordon at the time, now Diane Duvall, who helped really brought my mom and family into the equation, went on field trips. My mom went on field trips with the class and even my mom helped me with some of the learnings when I had an operation, I had to catch up at home. So that's really important is to have that. Can I, ask you, can I ask you, what age were you when this, when, 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 when what you're talking about, when oh, yeah. figuring out your identity in the disabled school happened? Yeah, disabled school was around five to about 12, because in 1974, when I was 11, I was, I was just 11 when I went into uh, public school. So I was about six years in the Henry mm -hmm. Gardy system, back then the human resources or also known as the school in literature, it's called the school. And it's, that's when the whole shift before I was a teen in the elementary and then when I became a teen during junior high, that was where I was just a teen and it was a challenge. The reason I ask is because, and yes, I'm gonna be the one to bring up psychology and soci sociology again, but I thought we already were talking about that. But, uh, but specific theories rather, not, not specifically theories. <laughs> so if we look at Eric Erickson's theory mm. of psychosocial development, we know that in that transition from childhood to adulthood, in around the preteen years, which is when you were transitioning from that disa disabled majority environment to disabled minority environment, that's the age at which Eric Erickson's stage of identity versus role confusion is taking place. So figuring out who you are or confusing who you are and inflating that with the identities of mm. others and, and, and the inability to find your identity because you're taking on the identity of the world around you. You're just, you're not conforming, but you don't know who you are. You're trying to blend into those around you. That is that eight where that will be taking place. Now, Jeremy, you've been quiet. So I, I want you to jump into this and kind of give us the philosophical perspective on all of this. Also parent perspective, perspective of an, of an educator who you're helping to shape the lives of people who are much older than the cohort we're talking about. We're talking about up to middle school Give us a philosophical perspective on this as, as someone who is also a parent and also a teacher. So I guess there's a couple questions that I could uh, bring some background in on. The one question that I think of as I, I think about resilience is what is it that we're actually looking for? Like what, what should be going on internally? And I mentioned the Plato model earlier, Plato's views that we have these three parts of the soul. What reason should do is figure out what's good and what's right, what's true. What the emotions should be doing is loving what's good and like having an appropriate response emotionally to those things. And then you just have to decide <laughs> which desires are worth fulfilling and which ones aren't. But, you, but if reason can train the emotions properly then 
then the two together can help keep desires for things that aren't appropriate in check and seek wholeheartedly after the ones that are. Uh, but you also have other models that are out there in the history of philosophy, some of which I think are not always healthy. So sometimes it's worth calling attention to those just so we can avoid them. The Stoics, for example, treated emotions as always bad. Now, when you push back on them about that, they would say, well, I don't mean every emotion that you call an emotion. I just mean the ones that are contrary to reason. And they're good feelings. I just don't want to call them emotions. They get really kind of, uh, I don't know, they, they're using their words in weird ways. I find that interesting that you were talking about divisions within the soul because I know that a lot of philosophers and a lot of different religions have thought of things that way, not necessarily corresponding to the areas that you said, but I also know that Jewish philosophers, do, Jewish rabbis, Jewish philosophers, there's overlap, do divide the part of you that is not your body into two different words that are used. And I'm sure we can we can link to articles on that or we can do a future something on that. But I find it interesting because this seems to be an idea that goes across cultures. Well Which some of the Jewish happen. some of the Jewish philosophers were Platonists and were influenced by yeah, Plato. Exactly. For, for example, Philo was definitely a Plato a Platonist. Mm -hmm. And he's one of the major sources we have of, of Judaism around 2,000 years ago. And obviously there's plenty of Judaic thought long before that, before Plato was, was even known to Jewish people. But the, 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 uh, there certainly was a Platonic influence in, in Jewish thought yeah. during that period of time. And as it relates to identity. Um, so, um, but the Stoic strain of thought is actually a little bit later than Plato. And the, the, the danger in the Stoic line of thinking, I think it's somewhat unfair to the Stoics to, to think of them this way, but the danger in that direction that people have taken from them is to think that emotions are not good. We should distance ourselves from thinking about them as healthy and appropriate. And this is something that, for example, Augustine was very critical of the Stoics, Stoics for in, um, uh, I don't know, uh, fourth century or so third fourth century the the uh the stoics were a fairly prominent group in society at that time and and he wanted to point to the fact that grief can be healthy and yes. they didn't seem to think that mm -hmm. and uh it's perfectly fine to fear things that are worth fearing and so a lot of a lot of philosophical discussions about that kind of thing are about which emotions are healthy and when they are healthy, not about whether they are ever healthy, <laughs> but you do have these strains of thought that are out there that, that, that minimize emotions or talk about them. Immanuel Kant in the 18th century talks, uh, yeah. as, yeah. <laughs> talks as if um, emotions are morally irrelevant. You should never, they should never enter into your thoughts about what's good and bad and what's right and wrong. And that's not and, possible. And David Hume, the generation before him, had the same view, actually, even though they had very different views about what morality is. Hume basically denies morality as being a real thing that involves truth and falsity. And Kant thinks it, it exists and is real. 
but doesn't involve emotions. Hume thinks it's all about emotions, but it's not about anything rational. Whereas the reality is moral evaluation involves not just critiquing our thoughts and critiquing our actions, but also critiquing our emotions, right? There's, there's certain kinds of emotions that we can feel that are bad, not because it's bad to be angry in principle, but because angry at that particular thing is unhealthy. And, yeah. and I don't have in mind that, I mean, I, I mean, there are clear cases, right? I mean, think, think, um, racial hatred, for example, right? Virtually everyone today, this was not true several decades ago, but virtually everyone today recognizes that racial hatred is wrong. It's an emotion, <laughs> right? So you, you really do have to recognize, I think, to that 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 we can morally evaluate an emotion. Hmm. Nevertheless, and, that's not something we can easily change. Yes, and thinking, bringing back, bringing us back to the perspective of resilience and building resilience. A big part of of our capacity to build resilience is examining our emotions mm -hmm. and and making those decisions about should I let this, should I let myself be led by this particular emotion? Do I need to, to have an emotional response to this particular event that leads me to make these particular choices? And part of growing, part of our human growth and development is learning how to do that. And for people with uh, particular developmental disabilities, it's harder to learn how to do that. <laughs> yes. And we, we need some explicit instruction on how to do that. And what that's like is, is talking with us or interacting with us in a way that helps us to identify the emotions that we're feeling, express those emotions in a way that is most advantageous for us, let me put it that way, hmm. and then be able to evaluate that particular set of emotions as it relates to the, the particular set of circumstances that triggered those emotions. Now, I said a mouthful there. What's the, what is that going to look like in, well, in, a, in a practical sense? The, the first thing I think of that that reminds me of, and I know Liza's going to have some things to say about this, but uh, the first thing that that may reminds me of is cognitive behavioral therapy, which I should say, I should say is basically the same thing that Stoics recommend. I, I said some negative things about the Stoics earlier, but one thing that I think they got right is talking to yourself and being able to identify what's going on within you and change your thinking is good for you. <laughs> and that's something that I think they got right. Cognitive behavioral therapy tries to do that. I know Liza doesn't think it was very helpful for her when she experienced it. That was my but, experience. Though. Yeah. Was, so maybe that was my experience. Maybe it's doing something that's just not helpful for you. Yes. But but what it's trying to do is something that sounds like you're agreeing with, right? Yes. Oh, completely. And I was also shuffled between different therapists at the time. So the fact that I had no consistency could affect it, but I tried it on my own and it and with other therapists and it didn't really work for me but the idea behind it of analyzing your emotions and okay why does this make me feel this way what can mm. i do about it or can i just embrace it because 
honestly, with an anxiety attack, which is pretty common for autistic folks, or a, a meltdown or a shutdown, there's very little you can do about it once you're in it. You yeah. kind of do have to embrace it. But that idea of taking a look at yourself, whether that's figuring out who you are, what you're feeling, why you're feeling it, I wholeheartedly support. And that is something that I think, along with community, hmm. can help build resilience in individuals, especially disabled individuals. So community and looking at your identity, your emotions, everything that's going on with you, trying to find a way to look at that and say, okay, this is happening. But what? But when I pin down a reason it's happening, don't be annoyed with myself that it's happening, which I still struggle with, and I think most of us do. Yeah, yeah. But try and figure out and let yourself. We I, so often try to block out our traumas. Yeah. Let yourself feel it, and 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 maybe maybe that feeling it will show you something, and it'll. Do some good. I mean, Sam and I were just talking before this program about how the things that we go through make us who we are. I wouldn't be here advocating for disabled people or even doing any of the things I'm doing now. And I wouldn't be teaching if I didn't have the traumas around education in public school and around accommodation mm -hmm. that I do. I wouldn't be fighting nearly as strongly for accommodations for I still have trouble finding it for my, finding it for, for it for myself, but fighting for it for the kids that I'm going to be teaching, some of whom haven't even been born yet. And I want to I want to pull out something um, that your comment reminded me of, Liza, with the examining ourselves and you know talking to ourselves about what we're feeling and what we're experiencing. Scott, you said it earlier extend grace to yourself. And this yes. is something that I tell people all the time. I especially tell the caregivers of, of people with disabilities, be gracious with yourself because we are all, we're going through hard stuff and yep. we're not always gonna get it right. We're gonna make mistakes, but be gracious to yourself and learn from those mistakes. Mm -hmm. Those of us who were, are, teaching young people and raising young people be gracious to them yes right every time sometimes they're going to need you to step up and and model it for them demonstrate the right thing that they're supposed to be doing 16 year olds may seem like adults in many ways and some i can't remember whether it's you or someone else adults with training wheels yeah that was you that's me yeah. Teenagers are adulting with training wheels and they're going to crash and burn sometimes. Which is why you need to help them and support them. And while they build resilience, maybe they can help you do it as well. Yes. So the, the fostering resilience is, it's an all hands on deck. Mm -hmm. As we are helping others build their resilience, we're building our own resilience. Scott, you were going to say something? I, I like the uh, analogy, obviously the tortoise and hare. It's, it's the idea of of the expectations of uh, the uh, one wins and one loses. Obviously, it's been a while since I did the, uh, and I don't want to have all the educators attack us for who, who gets the wrong or the right response, but this is this race. It's a universal story. 
and, and how you can, because uh, I, I didn't prepare ahead, so I'm not, but it, it's that race and, and how you hit that race. And I love like the stories of the race, trying to get that million dollar prize and you get all the and National Geographic has and you have all those obstacles you have to overcome. And I think we forgot to mention, we kind of mentioned it, but it's overcoming the obstacles yeah. and how we're going to get to where we are. And sometimes you're going to have to go around for those that are watching, you have to go around a, a maze and sometimes you go through it or over or under it. And it doesn't matter how, because a lot of people with adaptive technology do it differently. And yeah. people with autism do it differently. Someone like intellectual discipline, I do it differently. Yeah, we all do. Yeah. And I think that's probably a good thing to... Yeah, and the, those are, the, dif the difference is okay. And so we're probably going to visit, revisit this conversation because there's just so, so much. much there. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, talking about building community, communities that make people safe and being yeah. included and that give give people who've experienced trauma mm -hmm. a safe a safe space to break that down, unpack that and learn from it. And also you gotta commit to this for the long haul. It's not a one and done. Yeah. Have this little conversation and okay, you got it figured out, go for it. My biggest hope is that my classroom will become that. It's it's a long haul kind of thing. It's a yes. lifelong process. And Agreed with that because that yeah. that was me. I'm still learning. I'm yeah. at least not interrupting, or um, I try to be tame on the show. And you know, you've been great. Okay, you brought all you brought yeah. all the good stuff today. Thank I think, you. Scott. I think this 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 uh, this uh, podcast wouldn't do without a little interrupting as we come up with ideas. <laughs> Minimize it, but it's still going to happen. Uh, Y'all can check out the bloopers later on straightindieradio.us. <laughs> we'll um, post them when we, when we have compiled that yes. we have enough. Yeah, we, we've got enough. We have enough. So <laughs> we have a visitor in the office with us today and she's in the corner giggling at us because yes, yes, she is. She knows. Okay. Back, back on track here. You know, it's okay if you go off the rails a little, a little bit sometimes. You know, you'll get back on eventually. Yeah, you'll 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 eventually find your way back on the rails. So I am. This is the Life Fantastic Podcast, the podcast where people with disabilities talk about all things disability. And today we were talking about resilience and helping people learn how to move through traumatic events in their lives. I am your host, the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce. I was joined today by my colleagues, Liza Citron, Hello. Scott Davis, and Hello. Dr. Jeremy Pierce. He still hates it when people call him doctor, but dude, you earned it. So there. <laughs> we are sponsored by neurodiversityconsulting.org and sentia.org. You can listen to us on straight independent radio, Check out the new website, straight with an eight, indieradio.us, and also keep an eye out for information about the Creativity Expo 2021. Thank you so much for joining us and listening in, and we will have another great conversation for you next time. And there we go.